We're live. Welcome back, listeners. This is Fantastic Books and How to Read Them, and we're continuing to cover Patrick Rothfuss' Name of the Wind, chapters 8 through 15. So I'm really excited to get into this set of chapters because this is where Kabo's story finally picks up and the plot really starts moving forward. When I first read the books, it took me a really long time to get through the first seven chapters just because I was in grad school while I was also reading this. So I was kind of disappointed with how slow the beginning of the book was. But once you get to this chapter and like moving forward, just I feel like the action escalates throughout the entire book. Like it just gets better and better. And I remember our friend who recommended the book to us, I would like read a chapter and I would text and be like, oh my gosh, it just got so good. And then I'd read the next chapter and be like, it's even better. What the heck? And then I'd read the next chapter and be like, it's still getting really good. What's going on? So that's how I feel about the start of the book. At least. Yeah, no, the first portion of the book definitely takes a little while to kind of get into the like thick of the plot. But now that we're here, it's so enjoyable because you really finally get an idea of where Kavoth is, what's bringing him to be. And there's you know. a lot better characters introduced in these next few chapters. Oh, yeah. No, it's definitely awesome. So there's no more old Cobb. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we never got the opportunity to say it before, but really big shout out to uh, our friend Nick, who really suggested us to read these series. And thank you to everyone who actually listened to our first episode. This is an entirely new process for me, so it's been really exciting to dive into the world of podcasting. Yeah. Are you ready to get into it then? Oh uh, yeah, let's go for it. Alright. Chapter 8. Thieves, Heretics, and Whores. The beginning of this chapter, we see Kavoth as a really young boy, maybe around 8, and he's traveling with his family, the Udimaru. And the best way to describe the Udimaru is like a troop of traveling performers. They, in a way, are comparable to you know a real-life band of gypsies where... I think they're also comparable because they're a cultural group too. Yes. Whereas like the true like Romani gypsies are like a cultural group and they have a history of being persecuted. So there's a lot of parallels between them and the real world. And he also talks about like the difference between being Idimaru and like the pride he has for like his people versus just being like, a traveling group of performers. Right. And the Idimaru are truly like masters of the craft. They are the highest level of performers and they have a patronage of Baron Greyfellow, which means that they are so esteemed that a lord has basically have them under his like protection and tribute so they have permission to perform across the land and they're not just kind of like a ragtag group of poor people just trying to put on puppet shows to get by. These people are like the highest level of excellence. Even in the last chapter, he was talking about how like the Edimaru have been telling stories since the beginning of time and they're the original storytellers and performers. So, like there's a long history of this culture and the pride that they take in their performing abilities. And the fact that Kavoth grew up with acting and performing as his background ends up being, like, a huge influential force in, like, what he can and cannot do later in life. Yes. Because he definitely has, like, a fake it till you make it kind of, I don't know, like, way of being. And he falls back on his acting skills a lot to, like, kind of slide his way into places he definitely should not have access to. Yeah, I know. And he has all these, like, crazy, like, get big moments where he does something incredible or just really um, outstanding and it's peppered in throughout this book is just 
you know, at the end of the day, I am a Demaru to my bones, and, you know, my best, like, moments are always, like, performing in front of, like, others. Mm-hmm. And so it's really cool that this part of him stays with him in his entire life. Yeah. So, anyways, jumping back into the plot, we have uh, Kavot, a young Kavoth with his, like, family, and he basically is traveling, performing across the countryside, and we get introduced to... Um, the people that are considered part of his family, the one family, the Adimaru. There's lots of different like traveling groups of Adimaru, right? They're just like one small yep. All, band so of them. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't really talk too much about like the members of his family just yet, but he does um, kind of jump into this story about how they enter this town and there's a mayor who tries to turn them away. He's like, no performances, um, you're more trouble than you're worth, you're not going to be like a good influence on my town. Yeah, he immediately um, has uh, so a like, prejudice and, I wouldn't quite say racist, but, you know, a misguided perspective of the Demaru, and he doesn't want them coming into his town, getting people excited and causing trouble, because he thinks of the Demaru as just like a band of like ne'er-do-wells that are just going to cause trouble and steal and give him more of a headache just for the sake of performing but they're and, obviously not about any of that no and even their license uh isn't enough to like convince his mayor that they're worthy he kind of snubs them and he's like well i'll give you 20 pennies to stay out of the way and camp outside the town and leave us be and that's a really insulting amount for the troop, because obviously they're such professional, high-grade performers that they'll make way more than 20 pennies in an evening. Yeah. So for them to get snubbed like that is really hurtful, and Kavoth definitely feels affronted by this, but his father definitely has this, like, calm, controlled manner, and I think he learns he learns a lot about, like, interacting with other people in this moment. Because it's the first time that Kavoth, I think, sees the world interacting with the Adimaru not in the best light. He, like, is finally understanding that the edema aren't always welcome. Yeah. And seeing how his dad graciously accepts it, but doesn't take it sitting down. And so this part's actually really cool. Kavol's father, Arlidin. He pulls on the license at the last minute. He's like, well, fine. I'm sure the Baron will be happy to hear about this. Yeah. And definitely has, like, a manipulative moment. But the mayor of this town is still kind of being obnoxiously dumb and is like oh you guys can perform outside we're not gonna have you perform inside the uh town hall you know you guys just gonna cause trouble again you know Kavoth and his performer family were kind of like all right like why do you keep sledding us but we'll do what we're gonna do and once the mayor kind of gets a full scope of the understanding of their connection to Baron Greyfellow because this mayor pays fealty to the Baron He's, this guy's just like a small peon within like this kingdom that they're traveling through. And even Kavot's dad tries to spin it of being like, don't feel angry at him, feel bad for him because like he's stuck in this little town and he has these small time like problems that he has to deal with and like we're free to roam about the country and like not be tied down by these other types of societal rules that other people are. But it comes with a price of always being strangers. Right. Wherever they travel. So after further conversations, uh, the mayor kind of begrudgingly allows them to perform inside the town hall and out of the rain, which is just good for everybody. Mm-hmm. So uh, it jumps forward a little bit and they're set it up for the night and kind of like bringing people into the 
about 10, like their performing area, really. Yeah. Um, there's this guy, Trip, who's one of the members of the troupe who's kind of funny and working the door and making jabs at everyone. But it's it's just all in good fun. Oh, he's great. He's like a smooth talker. Like, you know, he's making sure everyone pays to get in to see the show. He's like so- stopping each person just to like have a quick jab as they're coming through. Just being like, hey, oh, mind your feet. Let's keep it going. Like, it's just funny. Yeah, like, he's like, oh, you still have to pay even though you have an empty head. Like, just, just jabbing at everyone. So you kind of get the feel of like how they are as performers. They're very... Very lively, very... Like personal. Yeah. yeah. So, Charismatic people. Um, at this point, Kavoth is kind of overhearing someone else out in the square having a confrontation. So it, he he picks it up in the middle and he hears someone saying, like, I don't need a license. Does a peddler need a license? Does a tinker need a license? And there's this man there who sa- is saying he's an arcanist. And there's the mayor and I think a policeman with him. The mayor's doing the exact same thing that happened to them earlier. He's like, you know, we don't want your parts in our town, like, pass through. We don't need you. Um, You're going to be more trouble than you're worth. And so, you know, these cops and the mayor really giving this old guy a hard time. And this part of the world, people are very ignorant and they don't understand, like, science or an arcanist is. They just assume it's magic and it's just going to bring misfortune and bad luck. And so Ben, we get introduced to this character, Abanthe, who we later call Ben, kind of has this like, all right, I'm going to just mess with these people. I'd rather them fear me than try and give me a hard time and manipulate me. Yeah, so he, he kind of plays into it just to jab back at them. So he makes his lights grow really bright as if he did it with magic, just to give him a little scare. These guys kind of get freaked out a little bit, but they decide to press forward and try and apprehend Ben at this point. And Kavoth witnesses Ben do something extraordinary. This old man physically calls the name of the wind, and it blows a powerful gust that kind of rocks his uh Even his wagon. wagon gets, like, jostled in the wind. Like, it's a really intense blast of wind. And then even these guys get kind of thrown off their feet, and they realize it's more than just the nature. This was something kind of magical or supernatural that's occurring and though they run off well the way i understood it too is like the wind came just in one little spot like it's not like there was a big gust of wind that whipped through the whole town no. i never noticed like it was very controlled and very centered just on those three people that were having this confrontation so it was clearly very powerful and he was the one in control of it ben was yeah and so in this moment kavoth recognizes that this is something like true magic, something out of a storybook, like Harbalyn the Great. Oh yeah, he's fascinated. So he goes over to Abanthe and kind of introduces himself as Kavoth. And reads the sign on the side of his his wagon, which says, Abanthe, Arcanist Extraordinary, Scribe, Dowser, Chemist, Dentist, Rare Goods, All Elements Tended, Lost Items Found, Anything Mended, No Horoscopes, No Love Potions, No Malfaction. The first thing Kvothe noticed is that he spelled ailments. It's spelled A-L-E, which is a joke because Ben is also a brewer. So oh yeah, you get a kind of... He has a wide range of skills, obviously, based on what his sign says. He's also pretty... pretty he's an old guy. Too. Yeah, he's, he's kind of like himself. a silly old man, but very knowledgeable. I kind of think of him in the same way that like Dumbledore is written. Like everyone's just kind of like, oh, you know, he's... A quirky, whimsical man, but, like, insanely powerful at the same time. Well, in that moment, too, Kavoth actually 
feels kind of bad for him because he he's traveling by himself. He's clearly an older guy, and although he was capable of producing this powerful occurrence with the wind, he's also kind of pities him in a way, and so... Well, I think he feels like a kindred spirit of like, oh, you're also a traveler, you got snubbed by the people in this town, we have similar backgrounds. Yeah, so without really asking permission from the rest of his troop or his family, he invites Ben to come with him. Yep, yeah, he, he invites him into the troop. With Ben being an arcanist too, there's a lot of skill sets that he brings to the table that kind of benefit the troop, which was really cool. Mm. He's basically saying how he can make face paint or rouge that isn't filled with like lead or mercury or arsenic that won't, you know, basically cause harm to the performers from when they're doing plays and different things on stage. Yeah, I think he can do something with lighting too. Does he yeah, say? he can uh, make uh, lamps that are burning quick, clean, and bright, which we find out are sympathy lamps. You know, being a brewer, too, that's also going to come in handy. Yeah, he's just, like, mutually beneficial. And Kavoth does this little aside where he says, I invited Ben in to be nice, but I also was really fascinated and curious, and my main motive was to figure out how he called the wind down, but also to learn more about, like, magic. The magic that he heard about in stories, and the magic that he doesn't believe in. His main goal in inviting him into the troop was to find out these answers. Chapter 9, Riding in the Wagon with Ben. So obviously Ben has joined their troop, he's traveling around with them, and this chapter opens with a very delightful description of Ben that I just, it really warms my heart. He's like, you know, Kavot describes him as portly with twinkling eyes, he has a strip of hair running around his head, and no eyebrows because he was always regrowing them after having burned them off in the course of his like experiments and alchemical actions. So I just feel like it's very cute and he's curses like a drunken sailor and has a really soft spot for his donkeys who he feeds sugar lumps when no one's looking and has a bad habit of singing pretty poorly. <laughs> he's just basically he's, a delightful old man, very similar to so many that we know in real life. Yeah, he's just, he's a very good warm character. I really appreciate that. And Kaboth obviously takes a shine to him and rides in, in the wagon with Ben all the time. And he starts to ask Ben about what an arcanist is. So Kavos says that they had met one once, but Abanthi's like, no, 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 that's not a real arcanist. I'm not talking about some little charmer who works his way around the countryside helping people out. Like, I mean someone who's been trained at the university. Yeah, like a formal arcanist, not some peddler selling love potions by the wayside. A true arcanist, there's a way to tell, and... Ben shows Kavoth his uh, gilder, which is only given to those who completed their education at the university. And it appears just to be kind of like an amulet or necklace at the time. And when Kavoth handles it in his hands... His hand goes numb. Yeah, it, it just kind of kills his hand for a moment. Ben shows him that and says, like, this is the true way to tell if someone's an archivist and has graduated from the university. And he talks a little bit about the university having, uh, you know, a library with a thousand, thousand books, more books you can ever read, and there's lots of people who study at the university. At the university, there's lots of different things you can study, like chemistry or medicine or anatomy. Mathematics, uh, sympathy. Um... Right, so sympathy is like the main core of becoming an arcanist, right? It's... But there's lots of other things you can learn. Yeah, there's a lot of branches of education. There's the um, 
artificery where they learn to basically like craft things. I love the artificery. Medica. Yeah, so it's it's like a university similar to ours, but the heart of becoming an arcanist is learning sympathy. Yes. Sympathy is I guess it's a law of binding within yourself and the objects around you in the world. I guess well, it's like, like, it's what the magic is in this world. So right. magic in these books is a very scientifically explained magic. So like, obviously not in the way that like, you could scientifically explain it in our world. But there's rules that There's rules and laws almost like physics. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. But before Abanthi tells Kavoth that he's going to teach him sympathy, he makes him learn a lot of other sciences. So he learns chemistry. He learns... Kind of like Medicines herb and herbs, yeah. So he's basically like prepping him to one day go to university and have kind of a base general education of these topics that Kaboth's not getting because he travels around and gets a very different type of education from his family. Uh, he talks about how this is like very different from the memorization he's done for plays and stuff. So it's tiring he's exhausting his body and he's learning so much but he loves it like it's very satisfying um he's making a lot of progress yeah he's taking to it like a sponge and it's really impressive and enjoyable to read how he's just kind of like taking this in stride yep and it's pretty funny the chapter ends where he says through it all ben continued to teach me mental exercises that i was half convinced he constructed out of sheer meanness <laughs> definitely Kavos pretty precocious and I think he's one of those kids who just everything has come so naturally to him so for someone to actually challenge his mind he's getting as much enjoyment out of it as Ben is teaching yeah I think it's definitely I, like a dual partnership with that mm-hmm. I don't think it's sheer meanness I think he's someone's got to put a kid in his place too I yeah. don't know how old Kavos is at this point I in my mind picture him being somewhere between 10 and 12 yeah but yeah he's definitely like very smart for his age, very intelligent, and a little cocky. So I think it's good to have someone there to push it back on him. Chapter 10, Alar and Several Stones. This chapter opens up with uh, Kavoth and Ben going through another lesson as they're traveling on the road. Ben holds up a rock and basically asks Kavoth, what's going to happen when I let go of this rock? So now that... Uh, ben has been kind of teaching Kavoth and going through some of these mental exercises. Kavoth says it will probably fall, where anyone else would obviously it will definitely fall. And this kind of goes into the beginning of the Alar and the Heart of Stone. And Ben explains these mental exercises as truly believing something with such conviction that... You can like essentially fool yourself. Like, having such mastery over your mind that you would believe something, even if you know it can't be true. Yeah, so Ben tells Kavoth that he wants Kavoth to believe that this rock will float away. And believe that, with good faith, that it could move and go the opposite direction that gravity would intend it to go. And so Kavoth's kind of skeptical, and it's, you know, really confusing, like anybody. It would be like telling somebody... Go jump in the lake, you're going to go breathe underwater now. Like, it just defies everything you know. Yeah, and to convince your own mind of something is the hardest. Like, you're retraining the entire way your brain thinks about something. Right. So, Ben is kind of going through these exercises, and he tells Kavoth he needs, like, full conviction in his belief with this stone that if he were to drop it, it would not fall. And 
you know, like any other 10-year-old boy who's going to drop a stone, it's going to fall, and it does. And so when Ben asks him, he's like, did you believe that it would float? And, you know, Kabul understandably says no. <laughs> and so he goes, try again, and again, Kavod fails, and so Ben then... It um, seems like a completely pointless exercise yeah. from the get-go. Like, if I was Kavod and someone was trying to teach me something, it's a very, like, it seems like a very Mr. Miyagi moment of, like, just believe this thing and do this, and it will somehow amount to, like, learning sympathy. Right. But you can't understand the path of, like, how your mind is supposed to learn these things. So I would just be really frustrated if someone was like, well, just keep believing this rock is going to float. And then it falls, and then they keep saying, keep believing it. Like, it seems completely pointless at the beginning. No. And so Ben does do a demonstration of this to prove that it is possible. Mm-hmm. And I think after that moment, one, obviously, in addition to calling the name of the wind, Kavoth is then kind of like, okay, so it is possible. I feel like he's definitely, like, consumed by wanting to learn how to do these things. Yeah, the And wants to get to the end point before learning the whole process. Yes, and so kind of with sympathy and the ability to kind of produce these fantastic actions in this series, um, there's something called the Alar, or Heart of Stone. This is so cool. And it's awesome. You basically kind of like dig deep and like emotionally disconnect yourself from everything, so it's just cold, hard, determined logic. In this state of mind, someone could tell you that your siblings were dead and you wouldn't even shed a tear because you're just so dispassionately disconnected from everything other than pure logic and belief. Mm-hmm. And so Ben now gives Kavos these like mental exercises of Heart of Stone in which he has this like unbreaking, unwavering mental conviction that's needed in order to perform sympathy. And some of the other mental exercises that Kavos is doing is teaching him to split his mind into two two active consciences which is is crazy. one one half of his mind heart of stone and the other not or is it two separate i think or under, is this something different i think this is under heart of stone but it's a part of it no no i understand that i'm saying if he's splitting his mind into two are both consciousnesses consciousness is I know, it's like, it's pretty confusing. It's just like, it's confusing because they're trying to explain this in such a logical way that I go, oh, okay, I understand that. But then the more I think about it, the more confused I get. Right. Is he in Heart of Stone and then splits his mind into two? Or does he have one half of his mind in Heart of Stone and one half not? That's actually a really good point. I don't know. I don't know how it works. A lot of of, of little details It's like a little bit of suspension of belief. But it also, I think, for me, is very different from how all other fantasy magic works. Yeah. Because most people just learn it, and then there's a consequence or not. Like, in some some books I've read, you have magical abilities that you're born with, but, like, the more you use them... There was one, I think, like, the more you used magic, the more time you took off of your life. Yeah. Or something like Harry Potter, it's just kind of unlimited magic. yeah. If you just, like, learn enough. So... This one's cool because it's very, like, a scientific approach to magic, and they don't even really consider it to be magic in the books. No, it's just basically a continued skill set that you can develop. Yeah, it's, like, all mental. Yeah. It's very neat. But one of my favorite parts is where they talk about how 
to practice your mental control over your own mind. He plays this game called Seek the Stone, where when he splits his mind into two, he hides a stone in a place mentally, and then the other half of his mind has to find it. And my favorite <laughs> part is where he he does this, and then he looks for the stone with one half of his mind for almost an hour before he gives up. And the other half of his mind just didn't even bother to hide the stone. He was like, yeah, I just wanted to see how long you would look. <laughs> so Such a cruel like thing to do to yourself. I know. He says that he was equally amused and annoyed. So I think it's a fascinating approach to fantasy and magic. And I think I mentioned this in the first episode was that Patrick Rothfuss set out to write a fantasy book unlike all others. And I think by taking this approach to magic... He definitely put himself into a separate category. Oh, for sure. And I do like that there's a little aside in this chapter where when Kavoth understands that he, part of his own mental cognizance, did not even hide the stone. And it was kind of like a cruel, sick joke. He's like, no wonder there's a lot of arcanists that are kind of crazy. Because like these are such extreme mental exercises. Like You definitely do kind of become a little quirky yourself. With so yeah, much mental He's, training. The very last sentence of the chapter is that Ben mentions that sympathy is not for the weak of mind. And it, it's it's definitely something where like you can fool yourself into going crazy, basically. Yeah. So. And there's so many other facets of sympathy that we learn about later on that are even more mentally challenging. Like it's no wonder that so many people like don't actually become true arcanists because it's so difficult. Chapter eleven. The Binding of Iron. This chapter is actually one of my favorites in the beginning of the story. And it opens up with Kavoth and Ben sitting in Ben's wagon on like a cold, rainy, dreary day. And Kavoth, who normally is very like passionate about his studies with Ben, is kind of just tired and not really like into it today. Just like the classic like, <sighs> like hand on his face, just kind of like sulking a little bit, half-hearted into the lesson. I feel that. It's been raining. <laughs> so much here and uh for reference this is the middle of quarantine for COVID-19 so I have spent many many days lately just staring out the window trying to work from home going (sighs) yeah it's a little bit of a bummer I am currently still working so it's been interesting I work as an x-ray technologist for an orthopedics group but uh yeah it just feels very similar to how things have been here lately yeah, so we got a bummed out Kavoth in the back of Ben's wagon, and Ben is actually teaching Kavoth his first piece of sympathetic bindings, but before we get into that, Ben kind of asks Kavoth, he's like, this isn't what you were expecting, was it? And Kavoth's like, eh, I guess not so much. So he brings out um, a piece of currency called an iron drab, and he goes like, describe this for me. He asks Ben... Well, how do you want it described? Do you want it described physically, chemically, historically? Oh, he's being a little brat right he now. Is. So Ben gives it right back. He's like, you know what? Historically, I want the full history of it. So Kavol starts, you know, going into like how this currency came to be. And Ben is just giving him so much like... So, so much sass. Yes. He's like, well, how long ago? And he keeps like interrupting. He's like, but why? And just... Totally busting his chops, which is actually really humbling for Kavoth because he realizes, like, wow, 
I really have not always been the most patient student with Ben, and it's kind of like a humbling experience. Well, also the the whole learning process is the way you become a master of anything. Like I remember I took violin for six years, and I took it because there was a girl in our class who had been playing violin since she was three, and she was so good. She like played with the Philharmonic when she was like in elementary school, and like she was just like a master. And I was like, whoa, I'm gonna be that good too, and come to find out I have no musical ability whatsoever <laughs> but I just remember like the first couple of years it's like you play like a a a b b b and you're like this is so boring this doesn't sound good and like the whole process is just such a discouraging thing sometimes so I understand where he's coming from yeah and that's literally like um, what Ben was saying he's like well you have to like walk before you run you have to learn how to like play notes before you write a song and it's, I think Kavoth is so used to everything coming to him naturally that this is kind of the first time he's experienced really struggling with the learning process yes continuing back to like this history of the Iron Drab Ben <laughs> then asks how were they cast, like, created? Because this is, like, an iron piece of currency that it had to be, like, melted down and casted, you know, and as a coin. to a mold, yeah. And so he asks Kavoth, he's like, do you think that these two iron drabs came from, like, the same cast? And he was like... Like, same piece of iron? Yeah, and he's like, well, I guess so, sure. He's like, well, I need you to believe it. And in this moment... Um, Which is where he's calling back on that, like, belief exercise they did last chapter which is why i was saying it's very like a mr miyagi type of learning experience yes like something you learned before that you thought was silly is now like the basis of the actual process of learning that you're doing now right and so ben explains to kavote that uh what he's teaching him is called the sympathetic binding of parallel motion and it's the most basic part of magic or sympathy that exists within this field of knowledge. What Ben then does, he takes these two iron drabs and dips in some like pine pitch or sap. So there's kind of like a string of like wax connecting them. Mm -hmm. He then teaches Kavoth a sympathetic binding, which is really interesting. So the way this magic works is it's a combination of different factors. You have, you know, you're a lar that like riding crop belief and conviction that Things are going to behave a way that you want them to. And then you have to incorporate, you know, use of like this language in order to create the binding with it. But like the strength of the binding also depends on like the two objects that you're binding together. Yeah. And there's no physical binding. It's a mental binding. But like if your ALR is strong enough, it will play out in a physical way that you have bound these two things together. And then demonstrates how when he does this binding and says the words he lifts one of these iron drabs this like iron coin in the air and the other one that's just sitting on top of the table then levitates in the air as well because they're bound so like when one motion happens to one thing the motion happens to the other as well as if they are connected physically right and so it's pretty impressive and Kavoth is interested but he's not blown away by this and so Ben kind of recognizes that and busts I still think his he's tops. being a little jerk about it. He is. Like, that's cool. He's learning basic elements of sympathy and magic, but clearly Kavolt's an impatient young boy and he wants to be ready for so much more. Well, he's got his eye on the prize of learning the name of the wind, and so anything else until he gets there, I think, is like small potatoes to Exactly. Him. And so, right in this chapter, Ben then says, Would you rather learn how to call the name of the wind? And he kind of gives him like a wolfish, like grinning face that he knows that 
you know, he wants more. And he teases Kavod's back and he says, nope, you're not ready for that. You have to learn to walk before you run and you have to basically go through all this. He then lets him know that, you know, with these sympathetic bindings, you kind of need to learn the words before you know the language. And that really speaks so much more when it comes to sympathy and then eventually the art of naming. Mm-hmm. Before we realize that as an audience, Ben's already kind of giving him a true foundational instruction and explanation for what's to come. Mm-hmm. He teaches Kavot the sympathetic binding phrase that he needs. We don't ever hear what those words are, do we? No, I don't think Patrick Rothfuss ever creates that language. That's that's fine. I think, honestly, sometimes books that have <coughs> Aragon... Yeah, <laughs> it's so clunky. Like, it's a really clunky language, uh, and I think with Tolkien being one of the first people to create his own fantasy language, it was cool, but then there's way too many copycat languages, and I think sometimes it ruins the flow of just reading a book. Yes. Because you and I read Aragon out loud to each other, and reading those phrases out loud sounded so horrible. I was like, do off glog like it's just like it's just rough. It, it is so difficult to read. And I mean if you can't tell I didn't care for that book. <laughs> They're great. You have to get past the first one, but that's a that's an episode down the line. We'll cover those later. But um, I like that he just kind of was like, "Yep, say the words," and I'm not going to include the actual words. But that's all. It doesn't matter. Exactly. So after several attempts, Kavoth actually is able to do this. And while he's in his heart of stone, it's like this dispassionate calm and this like mental disconnect of. Not quite tranquility, but like cold logic, I guess is the best way to describe it. When you're in the heart of stone, you can create one binding per how many times you split your mind, correct? Yes, and that kind of develops more as he becomes more experienced with the laws of sympathy. I just wanted to remember that correctly. It's kind of interesting because, you know, he's able to do this and he doesn't feel like a rush of power, no flash of hot cold, and no like beam of light. He's not necessarily disappointed but he is just kind of like calling. That's just not accepting. what he was expecting at all. Exactly. After this mental exercise, Ben kind of leaves him be to practice, and he learns that uh, more than just one object can be bound. So he ends up practicing with an iron drab and another piece of currency called a silver talent, a stone, pieces of fruit. He then binds uh, two bricks together to make them raise. Well, that's what I was talking about earlier, is like the strength of the binding also depends on which two objects you're binding together and how similar they are. So the two iron drabs work really well because they're the same object and made of the same substance. But if you're to bind wood and stone, they're different, so it becomes more of a mental exercise and you have to create a stronger binding with the words or in your mind to make those work. So the more complicated things that you bind together, like the more mental strain it causes. Right. And so it's really cool with these books because then they describe like this whole process in regards of like actual physics that we know in this world. Like energy can't be created or destroyed, just transferred. So when you have a, not as strong as like they call it a sympathetic link, they kind of correlate as if it's a aqueduct that's uh, bringing water from its source to a water wheel. Mm-hmm. And if the link isn't strong, there's a lot of holes in the aqueduct. You're going to lose a lot of water. So it's going to, yeah, exactly. It's going to be more difficult. So he then correlates how 
if you were to try and link two objects that are very dissimilar, like a piece of chalk or a glass uh, bottle of water, the chalk weighs like ounces, but because the link of these two objects is so vastly different, trying to lift that piece of chalk in order to raise the glass bottle, the chalk would feel like as if it was 60 pounds, Mm -hmm. which is really interesting that that's the kind of correlation or what offsets these things in order for it to be done. It's almost like, and I wasn't super great at physics, but it's like how a lot of motion transfer is lost in friction. Yeah. And like the the more dissimilar that things are that you've bound together and linked, the more energy you're going to essentially lose as friction or heat. So it's going to require a lot more input for less of an output. Exactly. And so considering just being introduced to a lot of this knowledge, Kavoth picks it up very quickly. And later on even tells Ben after a couple hours of practice that you don't even really need that pine pitch between the two objects. And Ben's kind of impressed and he's like, yeah, that's just more for you to understand that these objects are connected. It was like a visual connection. Exactly. Yeah, so you don't even need to do that. Which is cool. It's like this kid, he can definitely be a little too smart for his own good, but it is impressive. Well, I think he's like not really a prodigy, but he is one of those people who's just vastly intelligent and, like, picks up things easily. And because he's a child, he still has that, like, curiosity and experimentation with the learning process. So he's he's messing around with things pretty quickly and because of that learns so much quicker. Exactly. Moving from this lesson, Ben teaches him other sympathetic bindings and little tricks for channeling the power and increasing his vocabulary of um, sympathetic bindings. In addition to sympathy, he then also gives him lessons with history, arithmetic, chemistry. Yeah, they're still learning all the same stuff. Ben's pushing him really hard because I think he sees how smart Koth is and doesn't want him to get to the university at some point and not have a basis for like all of the classes because no one else has taught him any of these things yet and he had no chance to learn them. So he's trying to catch him up. But I think because of it, it's pushing him really, really hard, too. Yeah, definitely. This uh, second part of the chapter, we have Kavoth also, because he is enjoying a lot of lessons with Ben. But this, keep in mind, is during his spare time. He still has his obligations to the troop. When he's doing these lessons with Ben, it's when he's done his other chores for the day. Whether it was like painting scenery for different plays, or sewing dresses, or... But they're gathering also, firewood. yeah, they're also on the road. So like gathering firewood and cooking and like making a cook fire every night is like part of the stuff that they have to do every day. Right. While he's doing one of uh, his chores for his parents, he's uh, building up the cook fire. He's just kind of absentmindedly reciting um, under, like a rhyme or a song that he had heard while traveling. Yeah, he's kind of a sponge. So he just picks up all of these things. And so. So he's just like saying this without even paying attention. He heard it like once maybe. He ends up kind of absentmindedly uh, singing the song. Seven things has Lady Lackless keeps them underneath her black dress. One, a ring that's not for wearing. One, a sharp word not for swearing. Right beside her husband's candle, there's a door without a handle. In a box, no litter locks. Lackless keeps her husband's rocks. There's a secret she's been keeping. She's been dreaming and not sleeping. On a road that's not for traveling. Lackless likes her riddle rattling. And, you know, Kavot's kind of just absentmindedly singing this. 
I mean, it's it's raunchy. It is. It's definitely not, you know. Not something for a child to be singing around. So his mom overhears him and kind of interrupts him and busts his chops and is like, what are you singing? And he was like, <laughs> uh, nothing. She's like, well, you need to think about this. This is about somebody. Yeah, Lady Lackless is a living person. So to say stuff about someone who you don't know and have never met is a rude thing to do. You know, there's a reason why she's upset because Kavoth then kind of, not justifies, but it's like, yeah, it's a little raunchy, but what's the big deal? How is it different from any parts, you know, in one of the plays for all his waiting? And in that play, there's a woman named Lady Periel that they say she keeps something underneath her hat that so many men want to see for themselves. And she's like, well, there's a difference because this is... A real person. You're saying something to a person and then you're talking about a person. And the first thing might be rude when you're talking to a person, but when you're talking about a person, that's gossip and that's worse. At that point, you know, we get an idea that this is something more than just like a song or a rhyme that's Well, his mom takes offense to it too. And like, yes, it is gossipy, but usually that wouldn't be something that would bother someone. And I don't want to give too much away, but this rhyme comes up in multiple iterations throughout the series. And the verses change depending on like where Kavot's hearing it, because obviously like it's just a regional like differences. But as we've said before, there's so much information hidden in these rhymes and poems throughout the books that it's, there's a lot of clues with that one. And I think the only thing that we have come across in the poem that we've already come across in the book is a reference to boxes that don't open. And Kavot has that thrice locked box. And it's not necessarily the one from the poem, obviously, but this is a kind of a recurring theme. Chapter 12, Puzzle Pieces Fitting. This chapter, Kavoth overhears a conversation between his parents and Ben, and there are two main topics that they discuss. One is the Chandrian, and the second topic is the university. Kavoth overhears it by eavesdropping, so he wasn't meant to hear any of this, but he comes into the middle of the conversation where he's hearing about this story that his father has been writing about the Chandrian and Lanre, so two main myths in this world um, that are connected and he's kind of been trying to chase him down so he both mentions you know for months it was stories about Lonray and then he was asking about fairy stories and shamble men and questions about the Shandrian and it seems like all these legends are sort of related and his father's really trying to track down how they all connect and get to like the truth of everything. During this conversation, we actually get some insight into Ben and more depth of his character. Yeah, so the first thing that they're asking about is just kind of prying for information from Ben to see if he has any information that they haven't already collected because it seems like his father's been working on this story for so long and he isn't hasn't gathered enough yet to finish it out. So he's grasping at straws trying to find information from anyone really. So one of the frustrations that they're talking about is that the story is really old and it's hard to get to the root of it. The first question that they have is how many Chandrian are there? He thinks there's seven, but some stories say three, some say five. One story says there's 13 Chandrian. And Ben says there's seven because the word Chandrian comes from the Temic word Shayan, which means seven. That at least answers one question. It's pretty, pretty clear 
And then his father's follow-up question is, what do they do? And Ben is like, you know, that's the mystery. That's what makes them more frightening than other kinds of villains you hear in stories. You know, ghosts, he says, a ghost wants revenge, a demon wants your soul, a shamble man is hungry and cold. But the Shandrian don't have any kind of reasoning for being there. They just show up kind of unannounced and cause chaos and then leave from what everyone can tell. But they're also such a mythical thing that nobody even really knows if if that's even happening. So his father says he thinks he knows what their purpose is. And Ben wants to know what his theory is. But uh, Kuo's father, Arladen, won't say. Just because, you know, he's been working on this so long and he wants to have the grand reveal eventually of, like, his whole, all this research that he's done and this, like, beautiful story he's put together. Uh, so he keeps his mouth shut, which is really frustrating because, obviously, as the reader, we want to know what they do, too. But there are some signs that the Shandrian have that they're also asking about. So Ben says, Blue Flame is obvious, which was also mentioned in the opening story that Old Cobb was telling in right. the... In the inn, so we know that that's, like, a pretty common thing. Even though Ben mentions that blue fa- flame is not exclusive to the Chandrian, like, other people can uh, do it too. He also says that one of them has eyes like a goat, or no eyes, or black eyes. He's not really sure which. Yeah, the details are a little hazy with that. Yep. And he also says that one, he's heard that plants die, or wood rots, or metal rusts. But he's not sure if that's related or one sign or several signs. And you know, a big debate uh, with all of this, too, was they were questioning if each member of the Shandrian, these beings, um, exhibited a particular sign themselves. Or when they were all together, these were just a combination of their signs. Right. So his mom is like, it's one sign for each of them that makes the most sense, which I think also makes the most sense. It wouldn't. Yeah. Really be logical if all of them just had sort of like all of this weird cosmic powers powers that kind of happened when they were all together. Especially because in some stories it's some of the signs and in some stories it's combinations of other ones. So his, Clearly it's like depending on which, which ones member, show up. Right. Yeah. So his mom thinks that not all of them show up at the same time. But obviously they still think they're talking about a mythological group of figures they they think there's a basis for the story but they think there's so much diluted myths and stories that have come off of it that they're they're not really sure like they're arguing about it but i feel like it'd be if we argued about the boogeyman yeah the like or even like jack and the beanstalk sure that story came from somewhere but it's not it doesn't hold much weight nowadays yeah 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 so they are talking about the signs and then Ben mentioned something about one of them being shadow hammed, shadow hamed, but he doesn't really remember the name of it. And so that's where Arladen jumps in and he's like, I'd like to actually, I've got collected some names and I'd appreciate your opinion on it. And this is where Ben actually gets kind of skittish and jumpy. And he's like, you know, names, names are powerful. You can write them down, but I, I'd be more comfortable if you didn't say them out loud. And surprisingly, Kavo's parents kind of, are surprised by Ben's reaction. They didn't take him to be superstitious or or kind of like skittish in this way. Yeah. Um, but they also don't realize that as an arcanist, Ben's fully aware that names are powerful things. And once you know the identity of a person or a thing, you have mastery over it. And so that explains 
his hesitancy, even though they don't understand that. Yeah, and the way he explains to them his logic, he's like, there's people around the country are all scared of different things depending on the region, but everywhere people are afraid of the Shandrian. And that fear has to be based on something. So wouldn't you rather be safe than sorry? He's like, you know, if, if a dozen people told you that there were shamblemen in the fields, you wouldn't believe them, but would you still go into the fields? So it's definitely not really hive mind of like everyone believing the same thing, but there's definitely weight to the fact that like people are scared of them. And he mentions that no one has a silly or a fun song about the Shandrian. Whereas they can kind of joke about other things to make them less scary. The Chandrian are definitely like a very deep fear for a lot of people. They're not a group to be taken lightly. Yep. And like you said before, Ben says like names are strange things and they're dangerous things. And I know that is true because I'm an educated man, not because I'm superstitious. Unfortunately, that kind of ends their conversation about the Chandrian. They move on to talking about the university after this. Well, they move on specifically to their conversation about Kavod. Right. As the reader, you want to know more about the Shandrian. Yeah. And this is the only little snippet we get from Kavod's parents about the information they've collected. But yeah, Ben shifts the conversation and is, is kind of saying like, you know, Kavod is bright, but I don't think you realize how bright he actually is because, you know, there's not lots of other kids around and you're not comparing him to other kids your age. And you're just kind of used to him. But... Ben says, you know, he picks up things really, really quickly. Even the loot, for example. How quickly did Kvothe pick it up? And his father really starts to think about it. He's like, you know, shockingly fast. He had a little trouble with one thing because his hands were small. But other than that, that was it. He just mastered it. And so Ben kind of continues further. He says how, yes, he may have maybe struggled with courting a little bit. But after he made like one mistake, did he repeat it in his uh, parents agree that no, he like corrected mistakes and moved on. And Ben's saying how this kind of applies to a lot of other things. He was saying how, think about how Kavoth speaks. He's very like articulate and well thought for a child. He's only 11 years old and... Oh, we finally get his age. Yeah, in this part, um, Ben says he's 11. Have you ever known a boy his age to talk the way he does? And he... it's more than just hanging out with adults all the time. Like I said, he's just like a sponge for knowledge and he picks up so much so quickly he picks it up but also doesn't struggle with it and he moves on very quickly and retains that knowledge yeah it's not like a picking up in a, like uh, a memorization kind of way it's like a pick it up as if he's like fully learned something he understands and then can comprehend and combine knowledge and experiment with the world even further because of the knowledge he's picked up so quickly Right, and so there's a really cool part where then Ben says, think about what it comes down to when he gets older, and when he leaves his mark in the world, he'll leave this world being one of the best. Oh, I love this part. Yeah. It talks about like all of the potential that Kavoth has, and no matter what path he picks for himself, he's going to be a master. Yeah, so I was like... If he chooses to stay as a trooper, he'll be the next Ilian, like one of the absolute greatest of all the Edema ruined history. If he wanted to... I think there's one It's like, if he becomes a merchant, he'll own half of a city by the time he yeah, it's is like, flattering. It's, it's very impressive. And then at one point, Ben even states, if he decides to go to the university, he'd have a court appointment to a king within his early 20s. And both his mother and father kind of 
taken back and in awe by Ben's praise. And it's not that I don't believe him, but it's one of those things where when it's somebody you know so well, you're like, oh, well, that's just our Kavoth. Like, yeah, he'll be great. And Ben's kind of reinforced, like, no, like, he's more than just great. He's a prodigy. I think also being a child, and not that children are belittled in the Edemaru in any kind of way, but I think sometimes people don't necessarily take children seriously. So I'm sure his parents, because they're so used to him, it's like, yeah, that's Kavoth. He's a smart kid or whatever. But having an outsider, especially someone who has trained at the university, say, like, he's really smart. There's a lot of potential. And, like, when the time comes for him to start deciding about his future, like, you need to be aware of, like, how intelligent he is and what kind of, uh, like, decisions need to be made to make use of that. Yeah, like what kind of future do you want him to have? Because whatever he does, he'll be great, but he literally will make a mark on the world, and it's important to consider what his opportunities are. And of course, as a kid, Kavos never thought really about his future, but it's it's cute because he goes back into the woods, I think, because he was collecting firewood, and his he's just got sort of like daydreams of the university, and it's the first time he's really thought about like, wow, you know, there's other places to go and, and other people I could be. Yeah, it's the first time as a child he actually thinks about his future actively and what his opportunities are, what he could become. It just really sets up the story for like a lot of potential. Chapter 13, Interlude, Flesh with Blood Beneath. So uh, any chapter that starts with Interlude is a break in Kavoth's story and we're back in present times in the Waystone Inn. Back at it in the Waystone Inn. <laughs> They're, in my opinion, the most boring chapters, but whatever. No, I feel like there, there's some that are really influential to like the overall plot, and they add for clarification during the story. Obviously, it's not as exciting as like the story action, but there are some parts of it that are entertaining. Yeah, I think I just, once I get in the flow of the story, I don't want to keep backpedaling out, but well, it's true. okay. So, they stop telling the story because Kavos says he needs a drink. And calls to Boss to bring up the cider, and there's kind of like a an indistinct reply, and eventually Boss comes back up, and Kavoth immediately is like, do you know what they do to people who eavesdrop on their teachers? <laughs> and Boss is kind of like, oh, me? I wouldn't do that. Uh, but what, uh, obviously... What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, obviously he got caught. So, jokingly... Kvothe says, I don't actually know what they do to students at the university who eavesdrop because I never got caught. <laughs> but yeah, no, he's clearly just giving Boss a hard time. Yep, so he says, you know, punishment enough should be making you listen to the rest of my story, which obviously isn't punishment, but he figures if, if Boss is going to eavesdrop, he may as well sit with them. And this is the first time that Chronicler and Boss interact with each other. And it says... Kind of, you know, something ought to be said about Boss. At first glance, he looks like a normal person. But if you kind of catch him out of the corner of your eye, you'll notice that, like, he looks like he's wearing leather boots, but he's not. And he looks like his eyes are normal, but they're a little bit odd. So you might notice some things about him if you're... If you're perceptive. Yeah, if you're perceptive and intelligent, you're going to notice that, like, some things are a little bit off. And Chronicler, obviously, being a very perceptive and intelligent person... Just notice that things are off and puts two and two together that Bost is not human um, and takes iron on a, like a necklace out. Oh no, he takes a metal disc out and just says iron. 
and the action happens really fast. Boss basically looks like he gets punched, even though they're sitting across the room from each other. Yeah, so to kind of like summarize it, Boss is of the Fey realm, and he kind of is enshrouding himself in like a glamour in order to like blend in with like everyday people. Yeah, does he have hoofed feet? Is that what they're getting? Yeah, at? so that whole passage where I don't know why, but I always it's imagine like, him if with you a glance tail. Out of the corner. <laughs> it very well could. It's, I don't know. It's open to interpretation. It's not said in the book, but that's how I picture it. You can it. give him a tail if you want. But um, yeah, it's like if you know you catch boss in the corner of your eye, something may be like a foot. If it's his eyes, maybe they're a bright blue rather than what they appear to be. Instead of boots, you might even catch like a cloven hoof. Oh, are they blue? I thought he had all black eyes. It, maybe like, I've made up clearly what's happening because <laughs> in my head he has all black eyes and a tail, which is not what it says in the book. No, it's it's okay. <laughs> but I've um, made him weird. It's fine. So Chronicler being, you know, educated by the university and being able to name and have this high level perception, he kind of sees Boss as the you know, the Fae. And so out of just straight fear, considering everything that's happening with the Skrail, he immediately reaches either for, it's either a gilder or just... I think it's just like a religious token, basically. Yeah, either way, it's pure iron. And when he grabs it, he calls the true name of iron. And it has like this physical effect on Boss. It causes him a lot of pain. He's like doubled over. Yeah, uh, he like makes this kind of like growling scream. And basically like he moves to re- retaliate. So he moves bizarrely fast um, and draws a hand back as if he's about to like, run across the room and punch Chronicler. Yeah, it's a very, like, primal reaction, which is, like, really interesting. Yeah, and so this happens, literally, it says, in the time it takes to draw a sharp breath. And still, Kavoth, being as quick as he is, like, catches Bost's hand before anything can happen. Yeah, he, like, grabs him by the wrist, so he, like, just reaches him. So he yells at Chronicler to undo the binding with the iron. And Chronicler's a little bit annoyed, but does. And Kavoth is obviously very upset. He says he doesn't want any fighting between his friends, and he forces them to make amends. Easier said than done. So as of right now, they're stopping their kind of like aggressive tendencies to one another, but... Yeah, he wants... It's basically they're just going to be neutral towards each other, I think, at this point. He does give you Bast's full name, so it's Bastus, son of Raymond, prince of Twilight, and of the Twelfth Mael. Awesome. That just sounds so cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. The brightest, which is to say the only student I've had the misfortune to teach, glamour, bartender, and not last my friend. It does say he's 150 years old. He kind of chides Bast for attacking a member of the Arcanum, which would be Chronicler. So, Kavoth... Knows that they're both really angry at each other, but still forced them to say, like, no, you've been introduced, shake hands, and we're going to move on. Just in the name of keeping peace in his inn and continuing to tell his story. So, you know, they're being civil to one another and kind of just sitting there, kind of eyeing each other. Chronicler does have a little aside where he says, I hardly even notice it, but kind of both only looks like he's maybe 25 years old. Right, and in this moment, um, Conkler then gets, like, more insight on, like, the power behind Kavoth and what a tremendous force he is, even just as something as simple as, like, breaking up a fight. Like, all he did was grab Chronicler by the wrist, or, um... Boss. Grab Boss by the wrist, but such a simple act kind of emits such a force behind it. Well, the fact that he could move so quickly and recognize 
what was happening and also what Chronicler had done in an instant. Yeah, so it's just, it's interesting. And there's a really awesome quote I like here where he has Bost and Chronicler kind of make up and shake hands and be civil to one another. And Kvothe says, amazing, isn't it? Five fingers and flesh with blood underneath. One could almost believe that a other at the other end of that hand lay a person of some sort. And it just like, you know, it kind of makes light of everything. But at the same time, like, we, people may come from different backgrounds, but we're all people all the same. And I just, it's a really just interesting and well-written passage. I like. I do like that one a lot. It's very humanizing. Yes. And so Chronicler and Boss are kind of just sitting next to each other and having a drink while Kavoth kind of goes to the back of the bar for a moment. When Kavoth comes back, he addresses Boss and says, well... Do I need to kind of go back on my story? How much have you been listening to? <laughs> Boss has been listening to the whole thing. Yeah, he kind of gives like a devilish grin guiltily being like, nope, I've heard the whole thing. Yep. So the little interlude ends with Kavila saying, let's get back to the story. And the story is going to take a turn now towards a darker downward spiral. Foreshadowing. Chapter 14 is called The Name of the Wind which is obviously the book title also. So this opens and Kavoth says, you know, he's kind of disappointed with sympathy, which we had been talking about before. He thought sympathy would be a lot more spectacular. He thinks it's useful, but that's about it. And he really is still fixated on like, Ben called the name of the wind. How do I get to that point? And then it kind of shifts where he and Ben are traveling in the wagon and Ben starts, you know, giving him these hypothetical questions. How would you heat this kettle of water? How would you take a bird from the sky? And Kavos not really got his heart in it just because he's getting kind of frustrated with like the lack of progress he's been making in terms of learning new topics. So his answer eventually is, I would take the name of the wind and use it to strike the bird from the sky, which is obviously a stupid answer because he doesn't know how to do that yet. And Ben was in the previous questions saying, like, what exactly, like, what process would you do? Like, what type of binding? What words would you use? Before Kavoth can even respond to Ben asking him how he would call the name of the wind, Kavoth says, I drew in a deep breath and spoke the words to bind the air in my lungs to the outside. And then there's... Fatal flaw. Yeah. Oh, God, it's horrible. (laughs) So he can't breathe. He's freaking out. He's, like, scrabbling towards Ben to show him that, like, he's choking, essentially. And Ben just takes him and throws him on the ground. And so Kavot's, like, tears are streaming down his eyes. He can't get any air in or out because when he basically did a sympathetic binding to the air in his lungs to the air outside, it's just too much the atmosphere and the pressures of everything involved there's no way his lungs could contain exactly yeah he says it's like as if he tried to drink a river or lift a mountain that would be the same type of exertion you would need to literally if you connect the air to your lungs to the air outside it's like you have to blow with enough power to blow all of the air which was his mistake so it's clearly not how ben did it when he called the wind before no and he also can't cancel the sympathetic binding that's in place right now. So he's really in, like, trouble. Yeah, so Ben just basically, like, throws him on the ground and is, like, shouting at him. But, like, both can, like, hardly even hear what's going on. Like, he's, like, losing consciousness. And he wakes up to Ben helping him to his feet. So somehow... No, Ben... Ben calls the wind. Yes. That's right, I forgot. Ben calls the wind to 
overpower what Kavoth had done. And like, thank goodness he was there because if not, Kavoth would be dead. Yeah. So obviously Ben is super mad. Not even just mad, just like it's, upset. Well, so, you know, like as a kid, if you make a stupid mistake and your parents are like scared and mad at the same time, yeah. so, like it's like a, a threatening moment. So he's like, he's so furious with the danger he's put Kavoth in by teaching him these these topics that are meant for someone much more mature. Well, it's not even so much maturity that is a part of it because he is so young. But it's like one of the first times Kavoth has acted without thinking. Yeah. And so it's all like, you know, hurt so much more when a parent's like, I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. Yeah, it's, like, it's definitely the disappointment card and like the you knew better. Yeah. Like you just knew better and it was scary for everyone and that's why I'm angry because like you didn't understand the consequences of what could have happened. Right. And so it's actually a really interesting conversation that happens later in the day. Kavoth and Ben... They, they really they stop, don't talk for the whole day. No, they they kind of ride in silence, and they stop at a graystone, um, which is also a waystone, which is what Kavoth has named his inn after, which are just these big stones standing by. And there's actually a lot of lore behind the waystones that um, I'd like to get into later, but as of this chapter, you know, their parents just have a habit, the Yadimaru in the troop, they always stop at a graystone. Kavoth attributes it to being good luck. That kind of helps breaks the silence between Ben and Kavoth, so... Yeah, so they stop at the the Greystone, and he goes to ask his parents if he can have dinner with Ben. And when he goes back to Ben, they have this conversation about... Not really, like, a chiding conversation, but Ben is trying to get him to understand like the, the magnitude of what he did. Yeah, so first he asks if he knows anything about Lonry's story, which is the story that Kavoth's father has been researching... Kavoth doesn't really know enough to, like, understand the morals of, of the, the legend. So Ben explains it differently. He's like, you know, what if you get have a, a thoughtless child? Like, is he going to harm anybody? Not really. What if he's older and still equally thoughtless? Mm, a little more. But what if you give him a weapon? How dangerous could he be? And Kavoth starts to realize, you know, like, thoughtlessness and being too clever as a combination can be very dangerous and terrifying, especially because Ben has been teaching him things that can be dangerous if they're mismanaged. He Ben is laying out the fire at this point for dinner and he makes the a leaf catch on fire so he can start their cooking fire. He's like, you know, something even as dangerous as this could kill you or looking for the name of the wind. And I think he's he's really realizing that Kavoth is still pretty young, so he, he asks how old he is and Kavoth says he'll be 12 next month and ben says he was 20 before he knows as much as he does now so it's been a little bit of a sobering day for him like they were having a good time just like learning these fun things and teaching someone who's like a natural learner is like exciting for everyone but the first time you have a big like uh uh-oh moment it's everyone has to stop and reflect on like what's been going on oh yeah it's very intense because the kind of magnitude of it all like Yes, Ben is an older guy, and he's acquired his skills over years, but it really says a lot about Kavoth and his intelligence and his ability to understand and grow and develop, where at 11, he's mastering content and skills that somebody tw- at twice his age at that time was understanding. It really says a lot. Mm-hmm. This kind of takes a turn for their relationship, too. It says that like Ben wasn't his normal self for several days, and then... 
there was kind of something between them that was preventing them from moving forward with lessons. Like Ben just felt like he couldn't trust himself with teaching Kaboth anything any more complex. So the lessons went back to like very simple topics and kind of strayed away from sympathy. So they learned, they went back to like chemistry and alchemy and history. And he's not teaching him really any sympathy at all anymore. He's moved him back to other topics. Kaboth thinks that, you know, like eventually things will just go back to normal and and I'll get to learn sympathy from Ben and it'll be fine. It just needs time. But unfortunately, this chapter ends with the statement that their time is quickly drawing to an end. Chapter 15, Distractions and Farewells. And this is the last chapter that we're covering today. And it's a little bit of a sad one because we find out that Ben is going to stay in this town called Hallowfell and marry this widow of the man who was the town's brewer. Ben is going to leave the troop and there's a gigantic party that's combined with Kavo's birthday and Ben's going away party and it's just like this it's bittersweet. Grand extravaganza, but it's it's definitely bittersweet. So it's really fun because as they're, they're all performers, Kavo says, like, you think as the audience that you're getting a good show, but we've already done it a hundred times. So when we have the chance to show off for each other, we go all out. It's the best of the best. They pull out some stuff that they've never even done before. And it's just a great night. To, like, pay tribute to someone that's part of their family. Yeah, they even write the Ballad of Ben Brewer Supreme, which <laughs> his father recites very seriously and poetically. And, of course, it's all in fun, so everyone's laughing and having a great time and dancing. Kavoth gets some birthday presents, so he gets a knife. And he gets... Oh, uh, doesn't Trip say at that age it's like... Yeah, um, so he receives a knife from Trip, uh, who says that all boys should have something they can hurt themselves with. <laughs> Um, Shandy gives him a cloak, which has little pockets all in it, which I love. Yeah, infamous cloaks in this book. I know. He gets several different cloaks throughout the series, and they're all just really awesome. And his parents give him a lute, which is a very sweet gift. He dances with his mom. Trip and Taryn have a big fake sword fight. One of the uh, performers, Dax, accidentally sets himself on fire. So it's like, it's just a party getting out of control. Everyone's having a raucous good time. But his parents sing the Lay of Sir Savian Trailyard, which I believe Kavoth performs later. The Lay of Sir Savian, right? I think so. I'm not sh- I don't quite remember if it I, comes up again later. At the Aeolian? Yeah. But it's um it's considered to be like the crowning work of Ilian, who was like the most famous Edimaru. So it's this very complex, very beautiful song. And he loves it because he's only heard his parents sing it a couple of times before when they finish it he cries so it's just it's just a very beautiful story and obviously he's crying not only because of that but all the emotions of losing ben who's like been his second father for him at this point when they finish though their performance everyone finally says like lonray lonray tell us this story about lonray that you've been working on for over a year now we're all desperate to hear it and normally Kavos father arladin would just say no but he gives everybody the first verse which is sit and listen all for i will sing a story wrought and forgotten in a time old and gone a story of a man proud lonray strong as the spring steel of sword he had ready at hand hear how he fought fell and rose again to fall again under shadow falling then love felt him love for native land and love of his wife lyra at whose calling some say he rose through doors of death 
to speak her name as his first reborn breath. This is just a teaser of the story that we're going to get, but the characters that are mentioned are Lonrai, who's the uh, hero, who we know, and his wife, Lyra, and there's a mention of him coming back from the dead. So that's all we really know about the story at this point. We'll eventually gather more information on it, but that's the first little teaser we get from the story that Kimbo's father has been working on. After that, his parents dance together. Ben dances with his mom. Everyone is finally saying their goodbyes as the sun's coming up. So they've had... They've been partying all night. A wild and fun night, yeah. So it's it's awesome. And, you know, as a kid who's been up all night, he... He falls asleep, he doesn't really remember, uh, starting out that morning, and when he finally awakes in the afternoon, he's got a present from Ben, which is the book Rhetoric and Logic, and it's funny because Ben had been using it to teach Kvothe, and it was actually the only book that he didn't, Kvothe didn't like, he hated this book, so I think it's an interesting gift, but inside, Ben has written the inscription Kvothe, defend yourself well at the university and make me proud. Remember your father's song, Be Wary of Folly, Your Friend, Abanthi. And this is the first time that Kvothe actually, like, internalizes the fact that, like, yes, he should go to the university and accepts it as, like, his future. And he's equally excited and also terrified. Well, it's like the fear of the unknown. You kind of are finally realizing that maybe there's a destiny and more to life for yourself than just traveling with your family. And I think that's a lot for him. So it's a really impactful moment for him because he's realizing that there's more than life that he once considered. Yep. And it's just really sweet because obviously Ben and him never talked about him going to the university, but he, he reads the inscription promises Ben that yes he will do well he'll try his best at the university and then just cries and that's the end of the chapter and the end of the section we'll be talking about today so just wanted to thank everyone for listening this concludes episode two of fantastic books and how to read them and until next time happy reading podcast was recorded by Anna Opishinsky and Sam Furman, edited by Anna Opishinsky, produced by Anna Opishinsky and Sam Furman, with webpage and artwork designed by Anna Opishinsky.